Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is a man who always keeps his shoulders covered while recording this podcast, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? I'm 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 concealed from from sight. Yes, I'm I'm very much covered. <laughs> if you want to tweet us, you can find us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry. Z A C Mabry. Email us podcast at RomanCircusBlog.com. Uh, we're on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod. If you have a second, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere there are podcasts. Zach, we took last week off. We're back, and we got a pretty great interview this week. Um, we already we already yes, recorded I'm it. We're doing about it. This guest. We're we're doing it out of order. So we did. Oh, I the thought interview. we were going to pretend. Okay, so we're not pretending. No. Okay, yeah. So uh, I'm telling you guys, this was a really fun interview, and yeah. Since we don't have to pretend it hasn't happened yet, and I already know how it ends, you got to listen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a little bit, it's been a few weeks since we did something like a sort of controversial topic. It's also been a few weeks since anyone has called us an, in, an idiot on the internet. So, you know, we're hoping that this, you know, that this is informative and maybe sparks a few idiot comments. Um, we'll take it all. We, we enjoy it. Uh, it's with Stephanie Slade of Reason.com. She wrote a piece, and we'll we'll get into that. I get into that in the brief intro. Uh, anything you want to say before we start the interview, Zach? Um, no, I not, I got nothing. Great. We're not going to do the news this week because the interview is a little over an hour. So you know, no fuffing about. Straight to the point. Straight to the point. All right, Zach, about a week and a half ago, I was out in Washington, D.C., and I was at a Memorial Day barbecue of, at the home of friends of the show, Chris and Kristen Anderson, and I engaged in a wonderful conversation with our guest about all things Catholic. And then a few days later, Sorab Amari decides to write a piece that shakes up the internet and our guest decides to write a rebuttal piece and i instantly messaged her said please please come on the show this is perfect and she said yes what are what are the odds zach what are the odds i don't know i guess nobody warned her (laughs) she is the managing editor and resident catholic of reason.com she is a overall wonderful person and the author of the piece, The New Theocrats Are Neither Conservative Nor Christian. You can find her on Twitter at SladeSR. She is Stephanie Slade. Stephanie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right. She's happy. It's always nice when people are happy to be here. So, okay. So for background, um, we Sorab Amari, former guest of the show, wrote a piece basically he he picked out uh national review writer david french and kind of said that this frenchian style of politics is not getting us anywhere and we need to kind of look beyond uh david french and his ilk and how they decide to how they decide to basically combat culture and combat the political landscape and sorab thinks we're basically 
if we're following the lead of them, we're we're doing it all wrong. And he and he kind of laid out his prescriptions for how to deal with things as far as the political landscape and how to like get culture on our side. And it kind of um, yeah, it, it it didn't go over real well with a lot of people. So in I wanted to start off first. So you, there's the the term classical liberal. I kind of wanted to define that first before we get into anything because it will come up. It comes up in your piece and it just comes up in general. So when when you talk about classical liberal and classical liberalism, what how how would you define that? Like what is that? What does that mean? Sure, uh, it's a sort of philosophical tradition that mm. privileges individual liberty. Um, and, and there's been a lot of thinkers, you know, going back several hundred years who have explored this idea, lots of great writing about it, and the sort of standard understanding of what that means, um, as I, as I define it in the piece, is basically freedom from aggression and coercion. That's, right. that's individual liberty. And so classical liberalism is this philosophy that says we want to privilege this. We want to have the default be we want people to be as free as possible and only infringe on that freedom, um, only say that, that that freedom can be legitimately infringed if there's a really, really good reason, like the, the bar is really high. Okay. And so with that, the sort of policy-wise, to bring it down to earth a little bit, um, usually that means that classical liberals are very big on Civil liberties, like religious freedom and freedom of speech, um, due process. They tend to be talking a lot about the, the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, also, free exchange, sort of economic freedom is part of this. You know, your, your property is yours, and you should have the freedom to control it and to decide what to do with it. And it, that means commerce and exchange and trade and, um, and also the free flow of, of people as well. So, you know, we tend to be very positive about immigration. Uh, the free flow of both goods and people across borders so that people, because, because we want people to be as free as possible, unless there's a really good reason. Mm. That doesn't mean that there are no good reasons. If you want to, you know, people say, what, what do you mean? You want to just let every terrorist come to this country? Well, no, that's a really good reason. But um, Mm -hmm. a lot of other things are held up, I think, as, as, you know, good reasons to stop people or goods from moving across borders that we would say, you know what, that doesn't, that doesn't meet the bar for us. Uh, Zach, I I completely forgot uh, to say when, when Slade and I were talking, she she was talking to me about what she does at Reason and kind of her political stance, and I took it upon myself to let her know that I was a monarchist, and it and, I, and it really uh, and it very really nice, st- very nice. It it really stopped the conversation dead in its tracks. It was amazing. <laughs> Um, I've ruined I, I, I've ruined family holidays with this one, so you know. <laughs> oh man! I, to be fair, I said at heart I was a monarchist. I'm not sure, you know, how much, but uh, okay. So that was a, just a aside for absolutely no reason. Um, one of the things about Sorab's article, right off the bat, do you think? Do you think that this hit home a little harder because he basically? names david french multiple times because in my when i read it i didn't think the article was like completely wild but i did one thing i did think sorab didn't do himself any favors with is not that he named david french but that he kind of he goes a bit far on some attacks as far as like they're kind of snide remarks as referring him to him as like preacher french or professor french or whatever it is it's kind of like do, do you think that 
I mean, aside from actually disagreeing, do you think this kind of hit hard because of who he was kind of going after and what he, how he kind of framed it? I do think that was part of it for sure. I mean, he yeah. was incredibly mocking and disrespectful, Pastor French this and um, and whatnot. I mean, he mm-hmm. it's hard to it's hard to um, he says something like it's hard to attack somebody as nice as David French. Indeed, he's you know obscenely nice. In fact, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, uh, it, it was not very. It was just it was it was not very civil, which which is no accident because part of his argument is that we should stop being civil. So I guess he was living up to his own sort of. No, that, okay, that's fair. I, I, I didn't think about it in that, in uh, it that way. It was also, I think, a poor choice to go after David French, or, or at least a sort of important one, because mm-hmm. um, because it, it actually it rallied a lot of people at National Review, you know, right. this, the sort of flag bearer magazine of the conservative movement um, against him, who I think some of them would have otherwise been quite... Um, sympathetic to his case if he hadn't gone after their sure. friend and colleague. I yeah. think of M- Michael Bernard Doherty, for example, as somebody who actually came out in defense of David French and who is right. clearly actually, uh, when it comes to the substance of the argument, on um, Amari's side. Yeah, no, I think MBD, mm-hmm. he, he's like, that's a perfect example of of you just the, the if you're trying to get your point across, you need to, making sound arguments is always important. And like, it just it's just the little things like that that can just turn people off. And it's a shame because I I like Sorab. We like Sorab here. And like I said, I don't think his article was wild. But I, I was just – I read it, and I was – even I was, like, a little cringy at what was happening. But um, so one of the things that comes across – Sorab's thing is, like, basically you, you got to go through the enemy to fight the culture war, right? He says – you have to go through your enemy to fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and enjoying the spoils in the form of a public square reordered to the common good and ultimately the highest good. Um, and one of, one of the things you counter in your piece is basically the idea of what is meant by the common good and what is meant by the highest good. Now, we're, this is a Catholic podcast, so I kind of obviously want to slant it towards Catholicism. But like, as far as as far as like the political ideology of cla- classical liberalism and then Sorab's side, like we as Catholics, obviously the highest good is everything ordered towards God, right? So how are we supposed to work in this system uh, where we where we know what the common good is and what the highest good is? And how are we supposed to kind of work within trying to order things towards that highest good without without clamping down and without you know, being tyrannical. Yeah. And, and I, um, I mean, just to be very clear, I said this in the piece too, um, I, by no means am I rejecting the Catholic understanding of the common. Good. Yeah. Sorry I, about that. You did. Sorry. I didn't mention <laughs> that. You, you were very clear on that. I'm yeah. sorry about that. No, I just want to be, I, you know, I just want to make sure that it's clear that I'm not rejecting the premise that there is such a thing as an objective good, that God right. is that thing. Uh, mm. absolutely believe all of that very, very deeply and try to order my own life, you know, accordingly. Sure. Um, my position, though, is that um, actually the sort of ca- classical liberal values that I was describing a few minutes ago um, are quite well ordered to, I mean, the, the church defines the common good as, um, you know, creating the conditions. Um, let me see if I can get the, it's the um, the conditions for, you know, for material, for, for progress and flourishing, right? Like that for us to be, be I wish I had the. Um, definition in front of me, but I actually don't have it here. I know, I was trying to um, think of like a snappy one really quick, but um, yeah. I, I quote it. Um, 
the conditions which allow people either as groups or as individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Sorry, that's from mm-hmm. the catechism. So that's the real, the real definition. Not, no yeah, use right. me trying to paraphrase. Um, <laughs> the conditions which allow people to re- reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. And so um, when we talk, when, when classical liberals and libertarians talk about the things we believe, very often you'll hear us using, using language, even though to be very clear, many, especially of my fellow libertarians, are not um, Catholic. They're not in many cases believers at all but they use language that is is very much in sync with that idea you'll you'll hear um you'll hear hear us say things like well we um you know we believe that um that that there's the human person deserves is deserving of respect and dignity and so we shouldn't try to control their lives and Mm. um things like um i don't know that 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 Material flourishing is maximized when people are free to exchange with each other and seek out, you know, seek out their own best interests instead of having somebody else impose upon them what they think their best interest means and um, that peace and justice are maximized under this system. So it's not that they're necessary. And I I even I even said at one point, um, I acknowledge that most libertarians um, don't under they actually don't take this logic far enough because they for the most part they do not um they don't they do not themselves acknowledge that the reason that the person hasn't you know the individual that there's the dignity of the human person is so strong is because we're created in god's image and sure and incomparably you know loved and valued by him and that's that's sort of where that comes from they, they usually don't go there but they know it in a, at an intuitive level and they've built almost an entire political philosophy on that foundation and so i think the premise there is basically that um, essentially, the state should not use kind of its coercive power to to like delve too far into these things and sort of allow people the freedom to, you know, operate, and that that will generally end up kind of going in the direction of the common good. Is in my understanding. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing one thing to say is. There's a reason that libertarians and classical liberals are such incredibly staunch advocates of religious liberty, and and why like David French, the guy who who was um, the target in this this essay at mm-hmm. first things, um, he was a litigator who was constantly um, challenging laws as violations of people's religious freedom and getting those laws overturned on those grounds. Um, I at reason and many of my colleagues who aren't even religious um, are constantly writing defenses of. The uh, you know the baker who doesn't want to make a cake for a gay wedding and the um, you know the ca- the evangelical college that doesn't want to have its student health and, you know health policy cover the morning after pill and all of this stuff we, even though many classical liberals might not agree with the reasoning that leads those people to to believe those things to hold those beliefs they we believe so strongly in the ability in people's ability to sort of we want to protect that conscience and the space for people to live out their conscience. And that's a thing. So in other words, we're carving out a space for people to seek the common good and to try to persuade each other and lift each other up towards that common good. Classical liberalism is about carving out and protecting the space as opposed to trying to answer the question itself um, about what that is. We think that I would say that that has to happen in the private sphere, that, that government cannot be deciding for once and for all for everybody what the common good is and then you know imposing it upon us by force um Mm -hmm. it it has to happen sort of organically by people 
striving and lifting each other towards that as opposed to you know it having happening top down somehow yeah and i i think the article um one of the issues that sora mentions it's sort of it's it's kind of a clearly clearly sort of an archetypal symbolic type issue that's much bigger than like the actual occurrence are the sort of drag queen story hour things which i'm aware that those happen and they're happen but like there's something that issue is like such a it's like it's a stand-in for a million other things at once. Um, and so what do you see as like the like the two different, like what would be the, I guess, classical liberal approach to, you know, see, if this is seen as a problem, what's the, what's the response? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would say from a classical liberal perspective, the only problem with the the drag queen story hour at the Sacramento <laughs> public library um, was that it was a public library. That That's uh, honestly, that's the only <laughs> that's problem uh, from a classical liberal perspective. We shouldn't be using, I mean, we shouldn't be using public funds to push one worldview out, you know, at, to the exclusion of another. Um, not that the library shouldn't exist, although certainly some. Oh, okay. I thought that's where you're say. going. And I was like, no, wow, that's no. like, I mean, really yeah, sure. Fun. That's like intense. Um, okay, never mind. <laughs> maybe, Sorry, maybe you don't that's think, where maybe, I was kind of, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, I actually, uh, we could not, we could have the argument, but we don't need to go that far. The point is to have a library could, could be a neutral pl- space. Um, you don't have to then choose certain speakers to use that space to elevate. And, and certainly they're probably, I, I mean, I'm just guessing here that they're not letting like the Christian Bible study also meet in that space. Yeah. Um, so, so the point, the problem from classical liberal perspective with that, and really the only problem f- from the classical liberal perspective is is that there's a sort of it seems like it's almost um, a violation of of the establishment clause or at least the spirit of the establishment clause of the First Amendment the the idea that we're we're picking winners and losers in this sort of culture battle um, and mm-hmm. the state is using the power of the state and public funding that comes from you know our tax dollars to do that so that's the only problem with that from a classical liberal perspective, I think that doesn't mean that there aren't problems from a Catholic perspective or from you know from sure, other sure, people's sure, perspectives yeah. on other grounds. But I guess what I would say is that if we didn't have that happening in a in a publicly funded building, um, you know, using tax dollars, then I am I am comfortable saying they have their their drag queen story time, and we talk about why that's a problem, and we talk we talk openly about it, and and. And we try to persuade people that that we have gone really off the rails with our culture. Um, that's the right response. And anything more than that, um, anything that tries to actually get government involved to shut it down, if it's happening in a private, a private actual private space, um, is going too far because it's now infringing on their associational rights, and that is problematic for me. Um, both on both for moral reasons and for pragmatic reasons, I don't think we're going to w- actually win if we go down that route in the long term. So yeah, Sorab, I think would probably argue from that position that that, and whether it's correct or not, that 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 sounds like a position that's okay with probably losing. If because what what I mean by that is, like we we're as Catholics, we know that basically we are not the culture right like the culture is not we're not a part of the culture like the culture is not a part like catholic so the idea of just kind of explaining and i'm not necessarily saying sorab is the preferred way on this i'm just saying that probably he would it would probably be the argument of if you're just going to sit there 
and explain and just kind of try and win people onto your side, that's probably a losing endeavor. I, I mean, I my main response to that is I think yeah. that there's power in the truth. Uh-huh. And so if we really believe that we're right, and I do, yeah. um, then we should have a little more faith um, in our side and our ability to win and not try to tear down the rules you know, mm-hmm. uh, so, so that's, that's my, my first, you know, my first response to that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so if we're, if we're talking like just, if we're talking about common good and we're talking about there being an objective good in general, like if we think there's an objective good, right? Like, is it, so there's no, you, there's no libertarian argument for imposing the objective good on anyone at all right it comes down to purely not infringing on people's freedoms right even if there's an objective good it's to people have to come to the objective good themselves sure and i think that that's consistent with i mean i think it's consistent with the catholic church's understanding as well um you know there's a reason that we that the church doesn't sanction and even even going back you know going back to the crusades and the inquisition there was never right. a time when the church officially sanctioned forced conversions right that sure. it happened for sure it happened um but it shouldn't have happened that 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 was a um right you know. it was generally in a, a kind of an exception to the rule and pretty much always frowned upon i mean they invented lent to try to like scare off people that were converting for like social privilege i mean they didn't invent it but like lent got longer and harder because they were like oh everybody is now becoming catholic like this is you know they're watering down the religion like we got to filter these guys out so i mean yeah it's it hasn't consistently spread through any kind of coercive means and I, i quote the catechism you know quote god created man a rational being conferring on him the dignity of a person who can initiate and control his own actions end quote um, that sounds a lot like classical liberalism, doesn't it? Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that I'm perverting the church's teachings in, in order to bend them and twist them into a knot in order to support, you know, my my political views. I, I think that they're that they're easily reconciled and beautifully reconciled, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I agree. I the pushback on that for me would be that the the church clearly defines the you know the the good and the bad like so we have the freedom to choose but really like our freedom we have we we have we know that there's a correct choice and there's a wrong choice right like it i'm not i'm not and this is not like i'll plead ignorance a little bit like on as far as like libertarianism and all that i'm not like super knowledgeable but as far as the church like we sure we have free we have free will but we've always like it's basically the, the you know the will to, to join our will to God or to sin, right? To not, to go towards Him or to go away from Him. So, it's, it's not. It's, I, I don't see that necessarily as like a complete, a complete like. Uh, what am I trying to look for? Like a, it is a free will, but it's like, it's not just like a free will of choices as much as it's a free will to to do correct. And when I when I when I think about libertarianism and please correct me, like it's just, it seems more of like just the freedom to just choose in general. And when, when it comes down to it, like you may choose the right one, you may choose the wrong one, but at the end of the day, the value comes in the choice, not the actual, uh, conclusion, not the actual 
the, the value comes the ability to choose, not the actual choice. Uh, yeah, I would push back against that. I think there's disagreement among libertarians, um, but but to say that the the ability to choose is really important is not the same thing um, as to say that the the different choices are morally equal. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's nothing about the classical liberal worldview that requires you to think that some people might believe that there might be moral relativists out there, but that's actually not like a, it's certainly not a core part of classical liberalism or libertarianism. If anything, libertarians tend to be very sort of talk in very um, stark moral terms about right and wrong. And Mm. so it's clear that, that, you know, almost all of us believe deeply that there is a difference between, you know, objective um, right and objective wrong good and evil that sort of thing they might not they might not use the word evil but they definitely mm-hmm. you know they, they believe that there's a, a objective morality out there and they use we use it to talk about what we believe and so we're absolutely not arguing that um that there should be a right we should have the right to choose because all the ch- choices are equivalent that's that's not the argument here it's just we should have the right to choose period I think one issue that where this really that I think really sort of exposes I don't know if I'd call it a fault line but kind of a a, a division of thinking as far as like some I don't know if you'd call them like social conservatives or Catholic integralists or whatever uh, versus classical liberals or libertarians is like uh, blasphemy laws. So I guess what would you think? Like I guess do you have a stance on blasphemy laws because I think we all agree we're all think blasphemy is wrong. <laughs> right. Um, yes. And safe, safe to assume. But then <laughs> when it, you know, in places where it's banned, or where places where it now, because I think they just legalized it what in Ireland recently, and um, you know, but where they do have blasphemy laws, and that one is sort of an easy, like we know that's wrong kind of thing. Like there's not a lot of like philosophizing to do about it. Um, you know, whereas other times distilling moral principles down to the specifics can take you know you've got to have like six graduate degrees and all this this one i feel like it's pretty basic what would your stance on that be yeah i don't think there's any excuse at least in a society like ours here here i'm not talking about ireland necessarily um but in a country like the united states which is which is about one-fifth catholic in population wise there's no excuse um to be passing laws and infringing what people can say so i don't support blasphemy laws like anti-blasphemy laws laws. i think that this is a perfect example of a thing where that i think is wrong um but that we shouldn't legislate on it and I, i i always try to make this point very clear that I, I can think something is legal without thinking that it's morally correct. And actually, I think we all intuitively know that to be true about certain other things. Like the example I usually use, and correct me if you guys actually think there should be a law on this, but the example I usually point to is adultery. I think almost everyone, whether you're religious or not, recognizes that cheating on your spouse is wrong, is morally wrong. But most of us are quite disturbed by the idea of like empowering a police force to be raiding people's bedrooms and throwing adulterers in jail. Um, sure, sure, so, sure. So there, there's a distinction between wrong and you know something being wrong and something being um, a thing that should be against the law. And so blasphemy would fall into this category for me. Adultery, a lot of things, most things would fall into this um, category for me up until the point where you start actually having somebody, you know, aggressing, being violent against someone else. 
Right. I do and put I mean, abortion into you know, the category just to be very clear. Yeah, right. you, I mean, you state that in your that piece. Yeah. And, and that one's interesting because for the most part, I, I know plenty of pro-life libertarians. And then I know conservatives who take kind of a libertarian, they call it a libertarian approach of like, well, I just don't think the government should be involved, um, which is effectively, you know, it's kind of the same, like I'm personally pro-life, but, you know, yada, yada. So you would say like even if there were the ability to to get like an anti-blasphemy law on the books, we should not do that, like yeah. in the I'm short term opposed. or ever. Strongly opposed on moral grounds. Uh, again, I think this comes back to the sort of the, the moral argument about dignity of the human person. Like you don't we don't have a right to tell other people, tell people what they can say alone. And, and part of the thing that part of the way that the political left in America right now has gone off the rails, I think, is that they've started to equate words with violence. Um, you know, if, if you stand up and talk about why marriage should be the union of one man and one woman, um, they, they, they say that that's violent, that we're trying to erase, you know, people in, in same-sex relationships um, and, and, you know, like, we're right, doing violence like against them, we're making them unsafe. And... Sorry? Yeah, or like the language of like you're you're dehumanizing them or you're you're denying their humanity. And right, right. Like, and I think there are definitely some people uh, on the American left right now who would who would if they could, uh, you know, in the way that you're describing, you know, wave a magic wand and and forbid legally forbid anybody from ever saying that that thing that I just said again about you know one man and one woman. They would do that, and that's that's a huge problem. And it's not just it's not only a problem because they're wrong, <laughs> and and you know. The, the the church's teaching is true, but it's also because it it imposes, you know, it it, res- it restricts a person's ability to speak what he or she believes deeply, even if that person is wrong. Well, so if you go back not too far, in sort of the church's, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like not document history, but magisterial history, that I mean, the church had not necessarily comparing it to where we see kind of like uh left liberals and all of, all of that going but the church was not thrilled about you know free speech obviously i mean the, the anti-blasphemy laws were on the books because the church wanted you know i mean mm-hmm. and you know the church had you know the index and different things where they said you know certain ideas are destructive to the point that they are you know dangerous and there's a you know the encyclical Morari vo where it, it sort of famously compares um, you know, these things to a poison that even though an anecdote exists, why would, would anyone think we should be distributing poison? Um, and so I, I've just always thought, like, do you think that that the sort of consensus about neutrality and free speech, do you think that that is going to last long enough or is it eventually going to have to be one side that's going to assert, well, here's here's the rule, you know? Does that make sense? I think neutrality... I mean, there's an argument being made that it's inherently unstable and that eventually one side or the other, you know, acquires enough power that they will uh, impose their view on everyone else. Um, I just, I think we should, I think we should reject that as being, whether or not it's inevitable, and I hope it's not, and I, I don't think it is, but I think we should reject it as being good. And the arguments against um, restricting speech um, and things like that have even though they haven't been, um, they haven't been the position of the church forever. Uh, you might say they were relatively recent uh, in the grand scheme of, you know, church history. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have been, it seems, persuasive to the the current magis- you know, to the magisterium in the modern era. The the 
the teachings that I've read through the papal encyclicals of the last, you know, couple hundred years and and there's been an evolution and the arguments that, that have been made have been pretty staunch and um, unwavering in their, again, the, the sort of realization that um, individual liberty is important, uh, even if they don't necessarily use that word, but, but it's important because um, people can't make moral choices if they can't make choices at all. Okay, and yeah, and that's a big aspect for a choice, for something, an act being moral, is that there has to be like a moral agent acting, you mm-hmm. know, on their own. And then obviously our religion is very built on consent at, at the end of the day. I mean, you know, even, you know, whether you're doing something good or bad, you know, your consent to doing so, doing that does paint the action itself as being moral or immoral. And, you know, I agree there. I've just, um, I guess I've just thought it was interesting if you go back not too far and, and see the way that language is talked about, that it, I don't know, it, it not reminds me of what the stuff you see today with like, you know, trigger warnings and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's interesting that like, it did seem to be this consensus that existed about free speech and neutrality and kind of an understanding of what that meant and that, that that consensus sort of appeared and seems to be kind of deteriorating yeah well and and the thing i would maybe add i don't know if this was made clear earlier but um i'm all about using sort of social pressure and suasion to try to advance you know our 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 understanding of the good and the truth so um that there's nothing wrong with in my view with boycotts and with you know any, any kind of a campaign sort of social campaign or um, efforts, you know, from marching, marching for an end to abortion, or whatever the case may be, um, I'm okay. I love. I think that's great because all of that is is in the sort of these are manifestations of people using their freedom to try to change the culture and and persuade the other side and convert. I, I said I did a line in my piece. I think at the very end, end where I say like I just think it's a problem, um, and because there's nothing there's nothing Christian about trying to instead of trying to persuade and convert people, trying to just defeat and destroy people. That, that to me, seems self-evidently unchristian. So I, I think that's fair. I, I will say I'm like, I have this sort of obnoxious, like I tend to just be very opposed to boycotts because I think, one, they tend to be a losing, like embarrassing. Um, like <laughs> whenever Christians are going to boycott Starbucks, I'm just laughing. I'm like, like, guys, there are people being treated for addiction to caffeine like you're never going to come between somebody and their starbucks <laughs> in large enough numbers to actually um do anything and then the recent kind of pro-life boycott of netflix and i was like guys netflix gets like five new international subscribers for every one american subscriber like they don't they don't care if we all quit at this point and so it, it, like my suggestion was that they should just push you know try to push the uh it's unrealistic but i think so is trying to get a million people to quit netflix i was like why don't you just push the trump administration to take antitrust action against netflix and bust their production wing from their distribution wing and say this is you know this can't operate you know i was like to me that if people came together with that as their goal what makes that inherently different from like the boycotting thing is is it just the sort of involvement of the state's coercive power 
Yeah, that, that that's a really important difference um, under the sort of classical liberal framework, because, you know, the think of the definition of the state. Um, the famous definition by the political philosopher Max Weber is that the state is the entity that has a monopoly on the use of violence in society. Um, it's the only entity that we say can force you, you know, put a gun to your head and force you to do something. And, mm-hmm. and we all say that that's fine. And so that is such an awesome power that it needs to be wielded extremely carefully and ju- judiciously. That That's sort of the argument here is um, anything else sort of sort of state involvement um, is 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 non-coercive it's or it's illegal right if, if I put a gun to your head and try to make you do something I'm committing a crime and I'm going to be punished right. for that and rightly so um, so so I'm I don't necessarily think I, I tend to agree with you that often boycotts are kind of silly but I I think that like that is the realm the realm of sort of private action and um, organizing and all of that cultural change um, is where this stuff has to happen because uh, because it it's just not and especially I, I um, you know your your argument about going after Netflix for antitrust either Netflix is a monopoly that is in violation of antitrust laws or it's not and the idea of taking a law that it's clearly not in violation of and um, pretending that it is and using wielding that as a bludgeon to try to get it to do something that we want in a totally different sphere is, again, really troubling to me. I don't think that's right. I think that's that's just so clearly a, um, well, but a in this example, of the rule Netflix, of law. I mean, to an extent, but I would say in this, in this example, Netflix is trying to flex their muscle to influence the laws of Georgia. And that, I think that itself would be um, an argument that they are you know too big and need to be busted if if they're big enough that they could actually um you know tip the scales for you know a state then you know i do think that's where the the sort of the sherman hammer comes in mm. um i mean i could be wrong but <laughs> that's i think that's i think that's where the sorab shift comes in is a lot of people are like okay well we've tried private action but wait why can't we just, why can't we just like want to use the state? Because we, you know, we, it's almost like, <laughs> it's like performance enhancing drugs or something. Like everybody's just agreed never to do it. But then it's like, okay, we see, it's, you know, especially throughout the Obama administration, just crazy abuses of power of, you know, even just down to there'd be people that were fine, but they had to give the money to some selected nonprofit that was, you know, very political in nature all these different things and it's like well why can't we just do that in reverse you know if you can find the right to same-sex marriage in the constitution why can't you find the right to life or find this i mean if you can find whatever you want to find in the constitution why aren't why don't we go looking for the stuff we want i mean you know if it's only if the constitution just says whatever the people in power um want it to say then the constitution doesn't exist It, it, it might as well not exist right it's not actually providing a check on anyone, and the whole purpose of the Constitution is to provide a check on the power of those holding power. So I, that again, that's it's troubling to me to talk like that. Well, but wouldn't I mean? Wouldn't you say in practice the Constitution means what the Supreme Court says it means? Like there, there's not really like it's hard to. I mean, I would love to be convinced otherwise on this because it's not like a fun thing to think. But I mean. When people with, you know, with uh, same-sex marriage, I was like, well, guys, according to the people who get to decide what the Constitution says, the Constitution says this has to happen in all 50 states. 
Right. That's. I mean, that's correct. Um, but that's arguably a. Um, I don't know. I think you should argue on the grounds that that is a failure to um, be 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 for for the body to be true to its mandate to interpret the Constitution as written, as opposed to you know pretending it says something it doesn't say. I, I mean, I certainly feel that way about um, Roe v. Wade. Um, I might be less. Um, I might feel that way less about Obergefell, but um, it definitely happens that the the people who are you know handing down rulings. Uh, bring their biases into the courtroom with them, and we should be we should be uh, holding them accountable for that. We should be shaming them when they do that. We should be trying to remind them of why that is not the rule of law working as it should, and because otherwise, uh, otherwise it just we just become you know we fall into the thing that that I think the Amari essay is sort of gesturing toward, which is just might makes right. That's it. it it's just about whoever happens to hold the reins of power at any given moment, getting their way and getting to impose their views on everyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think an interesting thing there, though, is that if you were to ask the people on the other side of these issues, they would say that, that you know, the decision by the, the recent decisions by the Supreme Court are, are unbiased. They're they're eliminating bias from the process by by opening up marriage equality. And, and the, the problem is there just doesn't seem to be like a consensus about what is actually neutral and what is unbiased and what is, you know, to me, like the common understanding of that is shrinking. I think one of the things that propped it up for so long was that America was really not a very diverse place, d- despite kind of how it's portrayed for like most of its history. And so you, you had this very kind of, you know, mostly just kind of this Anglo understanding of, of these concepts that endured, but you know now there's a lot more of a just in ideas in general difference, and it, it seems like the sort of like I'm trying to think of a way to better paint this. But if you were to like, I guess the Venn diagram, if we're saying that the, the you know the part where the Venn diagram crosses is where everybody's neutral, to me like it's moved so far apart that it it's hard to. We're not really leaving a lot of room for neutrality in the direction that that like significant number of people's opinions are moving. I think when you think in terms of Venn diagrams, I mean, I, I might be wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. But it sounds like maybe you're thinking about the substance of the views, the, the political views and moral views that are held from different sides and whether there's overlap or not overlap and more or less than there used to be. Um, when I talk about um, neutrality and the sort of classical liberal values and institutions that I'm advocating, um, it's not about the substance of the views being held. It's about the process for adjudicating disputes. Um, it's about how do we go about running this country and, and uh, you know, how, how does the government operate and how, does the, how do the courts, you know, decide when there is a, a legal disagreement and um, which laws stand and which laws don't stand, um, all of that. What what are people permitted to do, and what are pre- people prevented through the you know violent hand of the state from doing? It's all about pr- the process and having a, a process in place that's unmoving, that doesn't actually privilege one side or the other, because it's 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 not about again the v- the views, the substance of the views that are underneath. It's just about putting a framework in place for how everything runs, and then the people with the different views can work through that process to push their side and, you know, 
to compete with each other and to argue with each other, but no, no one side can, can get too, can do too much to the other because we have these protections in place that, that sort of keep the system functioning. And I, I, I totally admit that there are a lot of people who are, who are, again, on what I would call the political left in America, who are trying to tear down that apparatus, that, that liberal, you know, the processes that, that are, I think, the, the really great, amazing innovation of, like, the American experiment, um, mm-hmm. checks and balances and all that. They're, they're trying to, to tear that down to get their way. But the answer to somebody doing something dangerous um, isn't and, and immoral isn't to say, well, you did it, I'm going to do it too. It's to fight to maintain these incredible institutions and values that are so, um, so, so important and have been, you know, I think the sort of com- compar- the competitive advantage that the United States of America has had for the course of its history. Um, so do you think that it's almost in a sense... I guess, and this kind of just came to me as we've been talking about this, it's like ironic that to you to sort of the the Soram position, and it's not just him specifically, but like that way of looking at things, do you think that that takes on kind of like a like a will to power kind of, is that where it sort of steps outside the bounds of Christianity in your sense is that it, it becomes like basically just, you know, Nietzsche or something? I mean, is it, does that... Factor in, or is it... I'm not necessarily arguing that the people I call the the new theocrats or the integralists or whatever whatever we want to call them. I don't want to. I, I use that word to be so somewhat if you provocative, want to use, but right. So theocrats would be provocative, and and then integralists would be a compliment. So like, <laughs> just so you know which ones to use in what context. Right. Everyone, we, um, integralists is an, that's an embrace title, but theocrats <laughs> that one is just so you know. <laughs> right. Um, my my position my my argument isn't necessarily that they want power for power's sake, or that they even would, you know, that that they're, they're they yeah it, it's not just I'm not just saying that that they that they're after power for power's sake and that that's wrong. Um, even if they and that they would they would abuse the power if they got it. I think probably they would because it's it is like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, right? Everybody thinks that that they're the one that won't be consumed by it. Um, I think they probably would be, and it would lead to bad things. But even the things that that Amari and and Co are openly saying they want to do with the power that they want to have, which and they have only good intentions. I think, like I, I give them credit for it, um, for the most part. The things that they're talking about doing are 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 things that I am opposed to, and I think are sort of violations of these values that I'm articulating. So the bl- blasphemy laws. Um, you know, one of the examples that there weren't a lot of concrete policies mentioned in his essay, which actually makes it very difficult to, to talk about this stuff. But um, another one. Yeah, he didn't actually offer a solution to Drag Queen Story Hour. Right. Um, which was, I mm-hmm. thought, I, I mean, again, I still think that issue is an archetype and it's really not about these individual right. events that happened. It was just, just a tangible but, thing that people could grasp onto. Right. Like on a, a different show I went on, like, um, Jim, are you familiar with Jim Swift? Yeah. Um, he kind of gave his answer for what you know he would do, and it would you know you you would run for the board of the library and all these things, and you know but Swaram really didn't give a stance, and it would have been nice if he'd said okay, you know we pass stricter decency laws or something just to say here's what I'm saying we do about it because you do kind of get to the end and you're like well what what happens like do like ninja priests come in and and snatch all these drag queens out? I mean like, I don't even. Um, but no, I mean, I will say your points that you've made have been very, I think, consistent. 
um, and kind of, I mean, coherent, it'd be insulting to say that because of course, but like I, I, these do make sense, the arguments that you're making, even to the extent that I disagree. I think that um, I definitely have a better understanding of maybe the, the foundations that you're working from on a lot of this kind of your take on all of this. Thanks. Uh, that was a great conversation, guys. I was glad to be, I was glad to listen in on that. <laughs> but we're, was, we're banning blasphemy like the moment they make me emperor. So yeah, that's, um, <laughs> we were, we were just trying to find out the best way to make Zach emperor. Uh, so never. Okay. <laughs> so this is, I, I don't know how to phrase this question and we chat, we, when we saw each other, we, I, I think we might have briefly touched on this in our little we had we had quite the memorial day barbecue chat about catholic state it was great it was great i'm sure everybody nationwide was having the same conversation but so is it in do you think the role do you think there's like as far as the state goes like i would i would be fine and i think i'm speaking for zach as well zach please jump in if i'm not but like we would be fine if it was basically the catholic state like if things were if things were run off the tenets of Catholicism. So from your standpoint, are you, you're, you say the state would, what, what would your, be your thoughts if that were to take place? Like, is that something you would get behind or is that, and I don't, I don't want it to sound leading. I'm trying to ask like yeah. a legitimate, you like know. if you, I guess if you could push a button and it would, it would go 100% the direction that you wanted it to go. Right. Would like a Catholic state be, in the cards. Right. I, I guess this, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out. It entirely depends for me how we get to that point. Um, mm-hmm. If we get to that point with like, I don't know, a, an invading army of Catholic priests or something, um, yeah. <laughs> imposing the state on a non-Catholic population against their will, that's problematic, right? Um, right. But a thing that is actually, this might be, it comes as a surprise, maybe, um, for you guys, a thing that is okay with me, at least in theory, is if if a bunch of Catholics wanted to start their own separate country, and they said like oh, we're man. starting a country, and it's going to be talking. run according to these values, um, and you know if you want to live here, you you have to live under our legal regime, and mm-hmm. and it's sort of you know opt in or opt out, but um, don't but you're not trying to you're not forcing it on anyone, you're not you're not like kidnapping people and carrying them to your, to your Catholic. Your, your 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 new papal state or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because that's basically contract. People have con- they've they've contractually agreed to live according to this legal system. I'm cool with it. The the problem with the stuff that we're talking about as actually being even like quasi plausibly on the table right now is is it's not that it's not people opting in. Um, it, again, we're a country that is. 22% Catholic-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you going to get to the point where we have a Catholic, you know, monarchy? How, how are you going to accomplish it? Well, and yeah, I mean, and that's a whole other question because, like, right. the, the ideal behind monarchy and, like, the reasons that I support it, I don't even actually have any clue on how you'd get back to something like that. Like, I don't, there couldn't ever be, like, an America, a king of America, and I, I have no idea how you would get there. Um, so it's, yeah. you know... I'm not necessarily arguing that we pick somebody. the The joke is always um, Baron Trump, but uh, <laughs> um, but the well, that's what Zach. That's what I I I say when people when people get into heated debates about how to run the Catholic state. My default position is uh, we the culture isn't even Catholic, so why are we talking about the Catholic state? Right? Like we need well, and I think that you 
Go ahead. I was going to say, it's, well, I, I think that it's important. Like, I, I would like the Catholic state, but I also see the the importance in, like, of, you know, convincing people to come to our side, right? Like, we need to, the more important question for me is how do we get everyone Catholic before we decide what the best way to run the Catholic state is? Right. And I really think, for as much as people will criticize him, that Pope Francis has really good instincts on this particular topic um Mm -hmm. i think that he is um i mean i a lot of people will call him a liberal this or that i think that he is very much a post-liberal um i know that not very many people agree with me on that but i think if Mm -hmm. you look at the direction that he takes a lot of issues um you know economics etc he he does talk about the common good and sort of the state stepping in to basically you know to get involved not necessarily on topics like we've talked about, like blasphemy laws or, you know, I, I doubt the Holy Father has ever had to comment on, you know, drag queen story hour, but, you know, mm-hmm. things like the economic conditions of the poor and or like and the uh, euthanasia stuff that's going on over in uh, whatever country sure. that, yeah. But even, I mean, even outside of the, um, like the, you know, the big marquee life issues, um, mm-hmm. the issues where there's a lot of room to build a consensus. I think he, he has really good instincts on, where to you know push for this i mean most people you know, nobody likes to see people go hungry so you know when he pushes on that i think that's where um because ag- i agree nobody's gonna be able to just come in and impose you know this sort of ideal um you know imagined catholic state on a population like the united states but i think mm-hmm. a just basically an openness to Catholic principles for running a society, which go way beyond, um, you know, sexual morality and that kind of stuff. I mean, it, you know, being poor, I always say, you know, if you weren't going to be poor, just hope that you were born 800 years ago. And, <laughs> um, but the, that's where I think that it, it sort of starts. And that's, that's where I think we're in good hands with our, our current Pope, um, as unpopular as he may be with most of our listeners. I know Z- Slade, we used to be, we used to have so much street cred and now we are so squishy. Like, I hope you're wearing shoes. This podcast is just <laughs> such, such a squish podcast. Now, when I woke up and realized the Pope Francis is, uh, that I liked him, it, it did, it did cost us a lot of street cred. Yeah. That was a, <laughs> a turning point in this entire podcast. Oh man. What else? What else do we got? Zach, do you have anything? Anything else? Do we not ask you? Are there any questions that we didn't ask you that you were like, just so ready to, to go on? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, we can get into the economic side if you wanted it, because if you want to, because I, um, I've written a lot about that as well, and I, I'm inclined to agree with you about Pope Francis, and it's one of the things I don't like about him, actually. So. Oh boy! Right. Okay, let it let it fly. We, we should, can't. We, we should do that. I don't know the time to. No. We should because, like, I have a like I studied economics in school and I have a finance Zach. degree and like I love these topics. Zach, right? we have we have a bit of time. Yes. Okay. All right. But so I, I thought we could spend hours on this. Okay. So uh, okay, where where do we start on this? So what? Why do you disagree? You disagree with Zach? All right, Slade. Well, you, I agree. You, I, I agree that Pope Francis's instincts are, are sort of post liberal. Mm-hmm. when it comes to these questions. I just don't like that. Oh, that's cool, though. I mean, because realistically, a lot of people, their big criticism is that he's a liberal. And it, they argue that because they, they see that he's not really a conservative. Um, but I think 
that he's just kind of on a very different vein from from that and the post-liberal sort of category is still kind of building out like it, well, it just he doesn't necessarily fit in those boxes interestingly but, the whole the whole concept of post-liberal um is built off of classical liberal not not like left liberal in the american sense when right we talk about post-liberal we're talking about you know a rejection of the values that i've you know spent the last 54 minutes trying trying hopefully to defend so um so yes when, and that's something our listeners are very comfortable with they know that when we talk about liberalism we're not talking about msnbc you know we're not talking about that like we're talking about you know the sort of system of thought that that rose to prominence in the 18th century okay. and well I, but so I think we'll it's sometimes clear. say left liberals and right liberals where other people would say liberal and conservative but mm-hmm. yeah like, though I, I like that it's definitely clearer but I, but i actually think it's it's uh, under that definition of liberal it would be weird to accuse pope francis of being liberal wouldn't it yes yeah yeah. I think so. Right. Um, yeah. I, so, so I, I don't know. My, um, my, my general thought on this is, you know, the reason that I, that I'm not a Catholic socialist is, is basically, I think, again, to, to go back to the sort of classical liberal understanding of the common good. Um, I think, and I actually think that the, the Christian socialists I've talked to and heard from on, on this often do this, like, sort of a bait and switch where they, they start talking about how start out talking about how much we we all need to care so much more about the plight of the poor and you know Jesus was clear on this and he absolutely was um, and then people on my side lay down like a metric ton of facts and t- statistics about how much less poor the world is getting thanks to these terrible sounding words like globalization and industrialization um, and and I really feel confident I mean I, Come at me with facts if you think I'm wrong, because I have mine ready to go, um, that that's true. Um, 1.1 billion people lifted out of extreme poverty, according to the World Bank, uh, since 1990. And that statistic is several years old. Like, the system is doing amazing, miraculous things. But as soon as I start talking about those things, then the Christian socialists always immediately flip and say, well, there's more to life in the material, and it's all about, you know, what is the system doing to our souls? And I go, I can't win this argument if, if you're going to start out talking about how you're the only ones who care about poor people. And then when I engage you on those terms, you you move the goal goalposts on me. Yes. And the, the bait and switch thing is one of the most obnoxious components of almost any dialogue because it, it's it, it's like very rampant. It's like not the I've, I have seen it in that context, but I've also seen it. We were talking about in a previous episode about a lot of times people start criticizing Pope Francis on one issue, but then they very quickly flip to other stuff and they're not really consistent. And yeah, I I kind of get you on that. It's sort of a barrier to dialogue. And um, I think that the sort of Christian socialists that I I find interesting to read are ones like Liz Brunig or um, Jose Mina, who had a, a piece in the Catholic Herald recently um, but I, you know, as much as I consider the, these people friends and I respect their thoughts, I, I do agree that that sometimes the common good let's provide to everybody doesn't totally filter down into policy objectives, and they will sort of define socialism out of out of being socialism at times. Like I, I just get kind of confused when they, you know, I mean, so this that's been a topic I've been learning about, and you know asking them questions and stuff, but it's an interesting, like you said, conversation because some of it seems like it's a, a battle of like terms. 
and and then yeah the the facts come into play and it gets dicey yeah well that i mean there's a whole like you talk about zach sometimes like it's we can it's more about like even though we talk about facts are important like feelings sometimes drive like what's going on so if people don't feel like if people don't feel like things are fair then that sometimes outweighs actually what's going on with with you, yeah you, you got something it was yeah well when we talked to the ben shapiro thing that was where we said okay you know his you know big line is that facts don't care about your feelings <laughs> and then our response though is that but it, it pretty much is feelings that shape history and and that's what creates the facts and so like the facts tomorrow's facts are based on today's feelings more Mm -hmm. or less like it humanity doesn't have a good track record of of being of of regarding the facts in choosing the next action oh i'm totally with you on that yeah okay well i think the perfect place to end would be an agreement who who, who would want to end in a disagreement who would want to you know we all want to go to bed happy tonight uh so this was fun you're at at slade sr reason.com go check out her piece it was uh most read piece on reason.com for a couple days which is fantastic uh make, the new theocrats are neither conservative nor christian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i hope we haven't proved ourselves to be uh any of the theocrats that you don't like <laughs> hopefully we're the good theocrats just to be very clear, I hate to take the sort of writer's cowardly way out, but I, mm-hmm. the headline is on yeah, the you don't write the chosen. headlines. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You don't write the. That's the other thing. I wrote. I actually wrote that down to say, and I completely zoned out. Is that the headlines are? You're not the one that decides like the byline headline stuff. So it it's it kind of you know it puts the burden on you a little bit, a little bit more than it I should. liked it though. I mean, as obviously sort of within the realm of the people targeted by that i i kind of liked it though i mean it, it's there's no crime in wanting a conversation to be worth interesting enough to actually pay attention to you know mm-hmm. yeah and you i mean it did the job you got your piece got kicked around twitter a whole bunch so it was pretty great so whatever whatever they did it it raised the eyebrows so it's nice to talk about something other than like what did uh trump tweet yesterday Mm-hmm. we'll get back we'll get back to that but yeah Slade thanks for coming on and uh, next time next time you write a crazy piece after someone else writes a crazy piece <laughs> we'll have you back Sounds and good. Uh, everyone go check out her stuff Zach anything before we click off here I don't think so but this was fun thanks for coming on and yeah sometime if we can get more of your time we can do talk more like economics and stuff because I love talking about that that would be great All right, gang, thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.